while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando. My guest today is from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration at Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. He's Edward W. Rogers, a Ph.D., and he is the Chief Knowledge Officer at the Goddard Space Flight Center. Ed, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Marcello. Great to talk to you again. It's my pleasure. I know we spoke, well, it's been a while, except just last week we spoke on my other radio show and I was just sort of carried away, as as most of us would be, about the new discoveries. The way the media is uh, painting it is that suddenly there are the magnificent seven new planets in the solar system and all as well. But when I spoke with you, and it, it hit me only after the show, so I wanted to make allow you to make your point again, because you ma- you made the point well, I just didn't quite get it until after we were uh, off the phone, and that is you can't see, we can't see these seven new planets, right? Uh, yes, well, thank you. It's, uh, it's uh, interesting how things translate uh, from what goes on inside the scientific arena yes. uh, and how it gets translated to the public it- media and for consumption. And there's a good and there's a good and bad side to this. I mean, the, the, good, the good side is we, we as scientists, you know, work very hard to try to make what goes on intelligible and meaningful mm-hmm. to the public, which mm-hmm. we should. Yes. I mean, it's our, the, the public is paying for us to do science and research, and it's our job to make not just discoveries, but to make those discoveries meaningful and, and to explain what we're doing and the benefit and what the lessons and insights are in ways that make sense to people who are not necessarily, you know, advanced scientists, and that's fair. The the danger is sometimes uh, artists and interpreters can get carried away with with attempts to make it uh, in a common uh, language. Mm -hmm. They get carried away and and can can leave people with impressions that aren't exactly 
uh, what the scientists are saying. You know, there's a miscommunication risk there. Mm. And, that, and that's what I was referring to when people talk about NASA seeing planets. It's not like we have a picture of some planet, you know, with tall ferns and dinosaurs dropping <laughs> around like their early life or something. Like people might imagine, you know, we draw we draw colorful images of like this. What, 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 what the Spitzer uh, telescope actually was able to observe, and this is very complicated stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm just fascinating how I'm not a scientist or engineer, as you know, but mm-hmm. just what these folks are able to do is just extremely fascinating. So some years ago, uh, planets around other solar systems were not even known to exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was the concept that, well, our solar system, meaning this, our sun and the planets that, that we're familiar with that go around, the, the, the eight now, right? You know, yes. not used to be nine, um, are, are somehow unique because we don't see or find evidence that other suns and stars uh, have planets orbiting them which kind of reduces the likelihood that you'll never find life anywhere if there's no other planet on which life could possibly exist, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so if you can't, the, the problem is planets themselves don't emit radiation, uh, you know, that you can see like our moon or the Earth. It reflects sunlight mm. when we see the moon. It's reflected sunlight, of course. And so when you get, you know, billions of miles away, that reflected light is way too dim to see. Uh-huh. Uh, but what they figured out is that it, 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 they can monitor a star, and the energy that the star is, is uh, transmitting that we're, uh, we're picking up, they can detect very minute uh, uh, deviations in that, in that uh, radiation that comes from the star. Uh-huh. And if that... And that pattern of radiation deviation is consistent, in other words, happens you know, routinely over time. One of the conclusions is there must be a body, like a planet, orbiting that sun, and it passes in front of that star mm-hmm. at a routine you know, scheduled orbit, and therefore that's why the star is dimming maybe in the order of it, you know, a tenth or a hundredth or a thousandth of a percent, a small amount we can measure, and that tells us, well, there's a planet orbiting uh, that star. So in this sense, you see evidence that there's planets orbiting the stars. You don't actually have a picture in the sense that we think of a photograph, you know, of a, of a telescopic picture of a, of a planet. We're seeing evidence. So they found lots of evidence. That wow. turns out there turns out to be lots of planets around, lots of stars based on this, this evidence. And, uh, and that changes the equation of whether you're thinking, is there any likelihood that there could be planets that might in fact be habitable. And that's what's so exciting about finding many planets. And this particular find that you're referring to, uh, the uh, TRAPPIST-1 system, they found multiple planets around uh, one particular star, which is interesting because that's like our solar system sure. in, in a way. Yeah. Unlike finding a star with one planet, okay, then you've got the chance of what, what it's like. So, so that's what's so exciting about it. it uh, not only are they finding evidence of planets, but it changes the equation if, it, if there turns out to be lots of planets and they actually are common, well, then the likelihood that there could be another planet Earth somewhere certainly goes way up from being, being very low in the past when we didn't think there were planets around other stars. Fantastic. Well, you explained it very well the other day, too. It's just that it, the impact didn't hit me. I had, I had the TV image in my mind and then after the interview I went wait a minute he said something very interesting there and you put you put it in a way that we can all understand and I appreciate that you say you're not a um, an engineer or a scientist 
What does a chief knowledge officer do then at the Goddard Space Flight Center? So my job is to help the center operate as a learning organization. My challenge is to help uh, a large group of people. There's nine-some nine thousand people that work at Goddard, mm. uh, 3,000, roughly 3,000 civil servants, and the six to 7,000 contractors, depending on how the work is going. And uh, <clears throat> my job is to help us, uh, you know, behave and, and work together, you know, smartly, collaboratively, caringly, learning from each other what goes on in one project to another project. It's a fascinating work because mm. the people are, of course, as I said, you know, doing not only extremely interesting work, but they're all also very smart people yes. on top of their game. And they appreciate what you can bring to the table in terms of helping them share, collaborate, learn lessons from one project, interpret those, how did that, what did we actually do, what happened, what did we learn from that, in terms of how we function as an mm. organization, as a team, as a project, and that we can go do that slightly better on our other projects, less miscommunications, less confusion, less missteps, if you will, in the, in the process of execution of uh, how we go about the, the fascinating missions that, that we uh, really are privileged to do working in, the, in NASA. So do you, do you um, uh, it, I never thought of NASA necessarily as a, uh, you know, people sitting down once a week and, and having a, a weekly meeting to discuss where we are, but do you have, uh, is it something like that or is it per project uh, where a certain people are brought together for a project and, and you sit around the table and uh, pretty brainy stuff to be brainstorming about, but how, bring that down to earth for us a little bit. How does that how does it work on a daily basis at NASA, I guess? We do missions that last uh, from design, proposal, approval, launch, orbit, travel in space, to gathering data, processing data, publishing results. That may, that may encompass 10, 12, 15 years, yes. as I just mentioned. Wow. And so there's a lot of activity along the way, planning and execution, <clears throat> how that happens that one group is going to get down the road on what they're doing and another group's going to be at a different stage working on another project. They may be at a different phase earlier or later. And so getting these groups to figure out what are we learning from what we're doing mm -hmm. and how can we possibly make benefit of that with another team that's doing something else. They may be doing a completely different mission. Mm -hmm. One's going to Mars, one heading to Venus, let's say, or, or Jupiter. But the kinds of things they do and the way they operate are not that dissimilar. Uh, and so how do we learn from each other becomes the goal. So what, what, what it looks like is getting teams to do several things. One is practice reflection. Well, what actually happened here? Mm. And so that's getting folks together in a room to spend some time. We call it pause and learn. Mm. Which is saying take some time to pause in the busy schedule and learn what we've learned so far yes. about how we're doing this work and get a little smart about it. It doesn't take a big investment. But you'd be surprised to get folks for an hour can be a challenge. Mm. They're mm -hmm. busy. They're working hard. They're on great uh, tight deadlines often. They're trying to work very tightly to a budget schedule. Some of them have launch deadlines that need to be met in order to, you know, if you're going to meet up with Mars, you better launch on time or you'll miss it mm. uh, kind of thing. And yes. so uh, getting them to spend time to reflect on what we did so far when we're not done yet uh, is a bit of a challenge, but they appreciate it. Mm -hmm. uh, and they do. And those reflections then get, there are two things happen. Very interesting conversations 
uh, amongst people who've been working very hard with each other, but they're having a conversation about how we're working and what we've been doing mm. and what we uh, what worked so well, what didn't work so well, and what can we you know what can we improve, and that can be then shared. They're also um, uh, taking time to get the story because mm-hmm. it's very important when you get to the end that you can actually tell the story of what actually happened. You know, mm-hmm. they say hindsight is twenty twenty, but actually most hindsight is about twenty two hundred very fuzzy mm. we don't have an accurate when once the things have all happened our view of what the decisions were along the way becomes very different mm. uh you know organizational psychologists will tell you that our view looking back is not the same as our view looking at it at the time mm. so getting these reflections to happen along the way gets a much more accurate picture of the decisions that were made throughout the life of a project and when you want to evaluate what did we learn at the end of a project which may be many years you have a much more accurate picture of the thinking at the time if you've done those reflective collections along the way. Gotcha. I see. And that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's a, it is a new way, I, I think, for most of us laymen. It's a, a new way of thinking about review and reflect. But I see your point. It makes all the sense in the world, especially since the, the you know, I say projects, but of course when you say missions, it does give it a... A, a, a grander and more accurate uh, description or concept of what we're talking about. If something is going to be going on for, in preparation at various levels in, in different departments for 15 years, hindsight probably isn't the best uh, way to evaluate, and yet it's necessary. Am I getting too far off the path, or does that make sense? Or no, that's absolutely correct, and it's not a, it's not a statement about uh, individual people or anything like that. I mean, no. It's a human condition that our memory tends to remember things favorably, yes. especially about ourselves. Yes. It's just a simple attribution bias that's common to the human race. Uh, and, and it's fine, and there's reasons for it. Psychologists can explain those to us. You know, it, it has to do with our psyche and our self-esteem sure. and all that kind of thing, which I'm not an expert on, But uh, which is fine. But it's just kind of the way it is. So if you don't do some mitigation to try to remember what actually is happening, how decisions were made, our, our memory afterwards is, uh, can be uh, less, than, uh, less than perfect, mm-hmm. but also not as helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we tend to underplay the things that may have been really challenging. And yes. those are the things that we want to make sure we learn from. You know, the really, the decisions you had to really wrestle with, you know, those kind of tough decisions. And, and you want to remember what it was like, because at one point, if it was a tough decision, that means you could have gone either way, mm-hmm. right? It was, it, was, it was a judgment call. You had to use imperfect information and make a call and figure out this looks like the best thing. Okay, we're going to go this way with this design kind of a, a choice and and later when if it worked all fine it looks wonderful mm-hmm. and you kind of forget the angst that you were under when other options looked good too yes you, yes. you know and, and you didn't take those and some of them may have been just as fine some of them may have been disastrous you don't you don't know until later mm-hmm. uh and so that's why it can be very helpful so what is it like then to to bring such high-level thinking and and uh, intellectual capability into the same room, and they are they each have their own area of expertise, but somehow it all fits to the mission. It's all uh, a necessary part of the mission, but they're sort of coming at the mission from a slightly different. Maybe it's too much to say a different point of view, but it 
a different area of expertise? How do you marry that? Is that part of what you do? Um, well, there's part of that. I mean, a lot of that happens uh, much earlier on in the discussions that go on around the question of what missions should NASA be doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a much bigger process than NASA itself. That takes place in the National Academies of Science, uh, at the highest levels of the government, and of course NASA is a participant in those discussions. Mm -hmm. and, and that may be more of where you're uh, referring to where there's lots of points of views about what's the next thing we yes. should be doing, what should we be spending our resources on, what questions are really the ones that you know we need to be answering, uh, and where should we where should we be going to explore uh, next? And so those are very very healthy and interesting debates that go on, and they make uh, multi-year plans, and lots and lots of input is taken into those. And, and then there's another phase of once we agree to actually we're going to do this, we're going to you know, send a, a mission that's going to go to Mars and do this or going to go to the moon and do this. Mm -hmm. uh, then you have the, the discussion, well, what's the best way to do that? Is it with this design or that design? You know? And they had all these questions with Apollo. Mm -hmm. uh, there were lots of choices made about how Apollo should be done. There were lots of choices made about the whole space shuttle system, what sure. its design should look like, you know, those kinds of things. Should it be reusable and, and all those? And those are all the discussions that go on. And what you'd like to have is when you get to the end of a, a mission or project is the ability to review those decisions and learn from them. And, and, and that's where reflecting and collecting along the way makes a lot of sense because those end-of-mission, end-of-project uh, discussions uh, with, with these folks are much more meaningful when you have those reflections to, uh, to bring to the table yes. as part of the decision. And, and, and frankly, people remember them. Yes. They just don't remember them well. And it's not a fault. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's just a, it's just a human condition. Human nature, yes. And they're, they're, yeah, and, and they're very appreciative that the learning is deeper and more meaningful. That, that is what people want. People want to learn uh, their experiences and uh, reflect on them. And so we're just helping people do what actually they like to do yes. if, if you can do it for them in, a, in an efficient manner. And so there's the challenge, not to create a big bureaucracy and forms to fill up and papers to fill out, you know, busy, what would look like busy work. Yes. Make it simple enough that it's valuable and they actually want to participate. And that's kind of the, 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 the balance beam we walk on, if you will. Well, the impression I got, uh, and we need to go to a break, but the impression I got when we met at NASA not to imply to anyone that I'm a scientist in any sense of the word, but but I was there uh, to, to be involved in something that Ed had created as a as a sort of educational or interactive uh, educational project. Would that be accurate, uh, Ed? Yeah, one of these learning experiences. How do we take what we learned in a mission and, and transfer that to others? So we had this uh, uh, theatrical representation of what happened on a, on a mission, and we're using that to portray some of these principles of how, how teams and missions work together well, and uh, you were a great part of that. Well, thank you. I'm, and, you know, it didn't occur to me exactly the way you put it, but that's what we've been talking about. I was sort of, what I did was sort of one small part of the various ways that you uh, come together there at NASA and review what your approach was, learn from what you did so that you can do it better or differently or prioritize differently. Is that a good way of putting it? Uh, yeah, exactly. Those kinds of things. And uh, some of it's as simple as being self-aware. Uh -huh. uh, uh, most of us don't see ourselves 
you know, as clearly as we think. Yes. Uh, and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I'm perfectly rational. And yes. all those other people that drive the Beltway are just crazy. <laughs> yes, I know the feeling. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so that's another part of our just human condition. And so some of this activity is helping us, you know, see ourselves a little better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, understanding the role that each of us has into getting uh, a mission success. One of our one of our former uh, deputy directors said, I think it very well, Rick Obenshine, uh, he had a statement that said, we'll never have mission success until we have team success. Mm, mm -hmm. Excellent. Well said. Well, yeah, I, I, well absolutely said. well said. Well, that gives me uh, not only, a, 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 well, I had an appreciation from what I've seen you do in our conversations in the past and NASA, but it gives me a, uh, an appreciation too of what little piece of the puzzle that I was asked to be a part of because I hadn't really extended the value of it to to what you do there. But of course it was what you do there because you are responsible for our being there. I hope all that makes sense. Anyway, we're going to take a break. We are talking to Edward W. Rogers, PhD, who is the Chief Knowledge Officer at the Goddard Space Flight Center um, in, in Maryland. And we're going to be right back. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, where he came from. How did he get to NASA in the first place? And uh, his world travels and family and all that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. The first thought you might have after watching Stephen Knight's terrific experimental film, Luck, is how did they do that and why am I coming away feeling challenged, delighted, and fascinated? Here's the setup. Ivan Locke, played by Tom Hardy, leaves his critical job, wife, and sons with no warning in order to drive from London to Birmingham to be with another woman who is having his baby. It's roughly a 90-minute drive, and Locke is the only on-screen character. No car chases, no guns, no women. Still, this is a gripping exploration of the human desire to control our destinies. Locke is an ordinary guy at the end of his world. While we are never asked to understand him, we come to identify with him completely. The burden is entirely on the talented Mr. Hardy and his car phone, a bunch of voice actors and some brilliant photography, which provides an eerie impressionistic beauty with reflections of light off windows and steel. Experimental? Oh, yes. Knight wrote the film in two and a half weeks and shot it for under two million. Every night they drove the highway in caravan, filming the entire script twice in sequence. From the results of those nights well spent, they pieced together the final print. Fascinating. Luck. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. My guest today is Edward W. Rogers. He is the Chief Knowledge Officer of the Goddard Space Flight Center at NASA. And we are we've been talking a lot about how as the chief knowledge officer, how he brings together the various um, uh, scientists and engineers and such at Goddard's Flight Center and how they review both past missions in, uh, in order to prepare for future missions and that sometimes this is over a decade long, this kind of uh, the discussions and rethinking and uh, reevaluating 
And it's not just hindsight, but to launch, uh, pun intended, uh, forward. But I'd like to talk now, if we could, um, Ed, first of all, did I get that right? Was that more or less what we were... Yeah, sounds sounds like a, you can come work for me. Okay, well, that's quite, that would be fun, I know. Uh, I don't know how much I could contribute, but I certainly would have fun. But tell us now, how did you, uh, Edward W. Rogers, Ph.D., how did you, how did you end up at NASA? So that's an interesting story. Uh, I have, uh, fortunate enough to have a very colored uh, uh, background and upbringing. Uh-huh. Um, it goes uh, goes way back. So uh, uh, my my mother was born in Beijing. Oh. Uh, she her father was a physicist. Uh-huh. Uh, my mother grew up grew up in the U.S. Came back to the U.S. in the twenties. Grew up. She married a physicist. Uh, not uh, surprising. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I grew up under the tutelage of my father, who was a physicist who would take me out, show me stars. Uh, explain the mysteries of the universe as I could understand. And uh, if anything, uh, certainly instilled a curiosity uh, in understanding, you know, the vast universe within which, uh, you know, we sit. So uh, I did not become a physicist, but I, I studied uh, uh, business mm-hmm. and was a, did become a professor. Yes. Uh, and was, yeah, I, I like him. And I was teaching uh, business uh, at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, where there is a NASA center, mm-hmm. and did some work with did some work with them. Was fortunate enough to do some, some projects, some little research projects with uh, NASA there while I was in Huntsville. But during that time, I saw an ad in the newspaper for a chief knowledge architect at Goddard Space Flight Center, mm-hmm. uh, and I took this uh, ad home. I showed it to my wife and mm-hmm. I said, Look at that. <laughs> ad, this ad pretty much describes what we just spent five years doing a PhD uh, at I was at Cornell, I'm mm-hmm. coming to New York. This this describes what I did my PhD in uh, and they're looking for someone to actually come do this work wow. inside NASA. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. And and uh, <laughs> being the wonderful wife that she is and has always been she said, uh, you should apply. All right. And which was, you know, we had just settled in, settled in Alabama nicely. We're very nicely fixed, raising our children, all that kind of good thing. Mm-hmm. Settling in for a nice, you know, run as a professor. Uh, and uh, so I applied, and it took months. Mm. Uh, and in the time between when I applied and when I was ultimately hired, uh, which was May of 2003, the Columbia accident. Yes. That happened. Yes. The space shuttle Columbia had disintegrated upon return, yes. and we uh, lost those uh, astronauts. Mm. And so the the, the the advertisement was was done in the previously in the fall, but you know they were kind of being slow about it. No, it was being the government pace, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, for a position. But when the Columbia accident happened in February, and then their investigation was underway, and all this suddenly, I think. The idea of having a, a knowledge officer inside NASA helping us learn and be smarter and learn mm-hmm. our lessons uh, became uh, an important topic. So sure. part of the answer is I was at the right place at the right time. Yeah. I, I got hired and uh, found my way. I just uh, have enjoyed very much working with what I consider to be a, a, a privilege to work with a set of folks that I get to interact with on a daily basis. 
who are just doing some of the most amazing kind of work. Yes. And so uh, I found my, my, my niche in there, and I've actually felt like very much embraced uh, uh, by, by them mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that there's a recognition that, you know, we may be very good at figuring out uh, these things, these, you know, astrophysical things and rocket science, as you might say, and yes. all the rest. Uh, but sometimes this organizational stuff is a bit of a mystery. If you can help us, that would be great. Well, wow. and and uh, so I'm able to play that kind of a role, and, uh, and it's, uh, it, as I said, I consider it a, a privilege. Really, it's a fascinating job, and I give my wife the credit for recognizing that when she saw the ad, because wow. otherwise, I may not have may not have applied. <laughs> wow, wow. Well, that's that's a great story. I wanted to hear it again because it's been a long time since we uh, talked about that, but. Uh, how about, uh, just to skip ahead, I do think the last time we talked, then, or the time before that, um, I did ask you uh, two, two things, or maybe just one. I, wanted to, I asked you about Mars, could I, because I had a political opinion. And um, your response was uh, uh, interesting. And then since then, I, people have tried to go off to Mars. And the second part of the question was, how is NASA, how's the transition, or how much of a transition is it, um, that um, private uh, companies now are going out into space? How does that marry? Are, are you, how does NASA fit with that? Is, is it less involved? Is it more? Is it a partner? What? So, uh, well, Mars is the, the first one mm-hmm. uh, that you asked about. So uh, I think there's always going to be interest in Mars. Mm-hmm. From a human point of view, you've always been fascinated with Mars. Yes. It holds a mystique of being similar to Earth, but different. Maybe it had an interesting past, uh, which is currently what they're finding, that Mars most likely had a, a past mm-hmm. during a very long time ago, but a past that might have been much more similar to Earth that raises the, you know, Possibility was it, if it was similar to Earth in ancient history, then mm. could it also have possibly been a place where you know, life could have formed? And that question becomes uh, you know interesting, and so they're going off to look at that. But ultimately, I think there's just a human curiosity to go there. Yes, uh, which 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 is wonderful part of being human that we just like to go places mm. and explore. Mm-hmm. And I think that drive, and I'm speaking at a very large societal level, not a humankind level, not mm-hmm. specific to NASA, mm-hmm. is going to be, there's pressure is going to be there uh, in balance with, you know, other needs we have here on the ground, mm. obviously from the budget, there's going to be a constant pressure to, we, we need to go there because it's there. Yes. And, you know, at, at, some, at some point, there's lots of other good reasons to go and explore Mars, but I think the human race just would like to have said we've been there. Yes. And I think that will happen sooner or later. I, I don't know when. Uh, certainly NASA is going to have a big part in that. It's going to take probably more than a decade uh, mm. or, or so to actually do that. Uh, lots of things have to happen in the meantime. There's some big obstacles, uh, obviously the time travel, uh, radiation, uh, the exposure of radiation. Uh, and the time that it would take a human to get to Mars is practically lethal. Mm. Uh, and so uh, there's lots of big questions. But these are the kinds of questions that, you know, NASA people love to challenge sure. challenge with and say, you want us to figure that out? Great. <laughs> I mean, they, they, just, they step up 
probably jump to it, and I, I'm sure that they'll be involved in, in figuring that out uh, sooner or later. Hopefully in my lifetime. I think it'd be wonderful, wouldn't it, to see a, see a human on Mars? Oh, yes. So that goes hand-in-hand with the, the question about transition to commercial access to space. Yes. And the, the big question, really, or the big, big uh, way to look at this, really, is, and this is not that untrue for many other uh, activities, that the government has sponsored research or uh, investigations or first of, mm-hmm. so to speak, in order to sort of find a way, prove a way, and if there's a way that uh, you know, um, uh, uh, people in the market can actually pay for that or develop means to uh, use those resources in some meaningful, responsible way, that that would shift more into the private sector. Mm. And, you know, whether it's aer- aeronautics or, you know, communications, the Internet, uh, you know, uh, transportation, there's lots of examples uh, where that happens. And I think space and space travel are, are not any different. Uh, they just may be taking a longer period of time and there's more complications involved. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I got you. Uh, but, Sooner or later, that's going to happen. And so, what we're seeing are the early throws of how that gets worked out, and the, you know, the starts and stops. And there's got to be some people who are willing to, you know, be the first takers and first sure. movers who are going to go throw a, uh, you know, uh, not throw a golf down, but you know, put a put a thing on the table and say mm-hmm. we're willing to go try this. And at some point, we have to say, go for it. Mm-hmm. See what you can do. Mm. And, uh, and and we'll learn from that, and there'll be others who follow, and there'll be folks, there'll be some mistakes. I'm sure there'll be some uh, missteps along the way, hopefully not fatal or catastrophic. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, some of the uh, commercial rockets they've been trying to launch have, have worked, some have not worked, and they're figuring out why, and they're perfecting it, which is pretty much what NASA did, yes. uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. We launched rockets, some, some blew up. We figured out why, we fixed it, and we made them more reliable, mm-hmm. you know, and so we, it's the same kind of process. I, I'm saying it's a perfectly natural process. Yes. It's only awkward because we're in a teenage phase. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Let's shift a little around the world and stay on the planet. Um, you have a, a certain affinity for India. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> India is an interesting uh, personal interest. Uh, so when I was growing up, uh, I actually grew up in Saudi Arabia, where mm-hmm. my father was a professor for many years, and they sent me to boarding school in India. Huh. So I spent four four years in the 70s uh, in a boarding school in southern India, and uh, just having a marvelous time. We traveled around by steam engine train and horse carriage, and, and we uh, rode elephants and wow. hiked through the jungles. And, Caught snakes and climbed in caves, and you know, did also. We, we we also got an education, but mm. uh, that was sort of on the on the side <laughs> to the uh, wonderful time. But the most important thing is, I just really got uh, you know in love with the Indian people. I mm. mean, they're just they're just so friendly and wonderful and stimulating. I just find them very very fascinating, and just feel at home really to a degree still today. Mm-hmm. So some years ago, I got an opportunity to teach back in uh-huh. India at their most, most prestigious MBA program, the Indian School of Business, and of course, I, I jumped at that. Sure. <clears throat> NASA was very accommodating to allow me uh, a month leave uh, once a year to go teach this program. I mean, they're uh, very accommodating to people who have PhDs and are professionals and are active in their field, which mm. creates a great... Uh, 
you know, a community spokesman system, all that. Well, sure. So I, I took advantage of that, and uh, I've been teaching there nine, ten years now in India. So I get to go every year for a month or so and teach uh, some of the best and brightest of their folks. Wow. Uh, and they, yeah, so it's fun. And of course, I travel around, and I take my lovely wife with me whenever possible, uh, and uh, we get to visit some wonderful sites. Fantastic. And you are, you are, uh, you're just back from India, yes? I just got back a few weeks ago. Uh-huh. Yes, I did. Very good. And so, um, you, in addition to India, you are thinking of taking your lovely wife at some point to live in Charlottesville, Virginia? Uh, yeah, so that other big move we made is uh, we bought a house in uh, Lake Monticello outside of Charlottesville and looking forward very much to spending more and more time there and eventually uh, retiring there full time, hopefully within a few years. Oh, wow. uh, this was and so, uh, as I told you the story about the job, uh, I basically said uh, we could we could move anywhere that she would like to move, mm-hmm. and uh, she researched out and uh, collected the area around Charlottesville and then found this community at, out in Lake Monticello, and we spent a year or so looking at homes until we found one that was just right, as they say, not too hot, not too cold, and yeah. all that kind of thing, and uh, <laughs> we're very delighted to have uh, uh, purchased a, a home there, and that we just love spending weekends there right now. I, I know Charlottesville, of course. I'm there quite a bit, um, and um, uh, I have a home there as well. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful area in the Blue Ridge Mountains, uh, which often protects us from the snow that we're expecting. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah. it's it's uh, you'll be a neighbor sort of. I we're way out west. Well, not way out west, but we're west of Charlottesville. But um, it's uh, it's a beautiful place. Welcome, as they say. Uh, Thank you. We're very much looking forward to it. Now, you, uh, you know, you and I once talked. I think um, something we had in common, besides having wonderful wives who love us and support us in in our work and do this and you know encourage us to move forward. But we we uh, we both sang to them as part of the courtship. Is am I remembering that correctly? I mean, I know I did. Yes, I think we did. I think we did have this conversation, maybe with over an adult beverage or something. I'm not sure. But, um, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember having that, and uh, I've always loved uh, loved singing, and, and uh, so yeah. The, the story was I uh, actually got I had a guitar uh-huh. in my days, and, uh-huh. and used to strum on it and play, sing songs, and and some of my uh, friends and I went to uh, her apartment at, at Ohio State, where we uh, were both in college, mm-hmm. and she lived in this little apartment building on the second floor, and we took a ladder, climbed up a ladder <laughs> outside her window. Uh, with a guitar and sang songs to her. All right. <laughs> and it, it worked. <laughs> it worked. Something worked. Uh, but uh, that, 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 had a, that was a piece of it. So I've always liked singing, and, uh, and you know, it, it just a way to, it's a great way to connect with human beings. Yes. Uh, the, the natural expression of the human joy of life, mm-hmm. the vibrancy, and it's just, uh, it's just a fun thing to do. So. And the two of you. <laughs> The two of you do ballroom dancing together? Yeah, uh, uh, so while we were in college, we also took uh, ballroom dance lessons together and have continued to do that throughout the years. It's a wonderful uh, activity, keeps you uh, moving, uh, meet a lot of friends. Uh, sure. You can ballroom dance anywhere pretty much. And, you know, you can just practice in your living room. You don't need the, you don't need the big uh, equipment or anything mm-hmm. really to uh, keep, keep up with it. And uh, so we've enjoyed that very much, and we're looking forward to continuing that. Uh, recently, I had the exciting opportunity uh, to actually 
uh, do a dance together with my wife at an event and sing. So I actually sang oh, wow. a song. I had a mic on, uh, sang, uh, you know, Fly Me to the Moon. While we <laughs> fox, fox trotted around the ballroom. Uh, it was quite a, it was quite a, quite a deal. It was, it was exciting. Uh, it was exciting to do. People were quite thrilled to see that at the, you know, at local level. Well, I know everybody would love it if I asked you to sing, but I'm not going to put you through that. What I will ask, though, if, as we take this out, give, um, you know, uh, there are a lot of young people these days wondering what's next, you know, in, in life and for America and whatever. How about those young scientists? We've, we've heard so much lately that we've sort of globally fallen behind and math and science education of course i'm always pushing the arts but what can you tell to the young the young ed rogers who's you know middle school high school and wondering what he's going to do with his life how do you would what do you tell him or her what i would say is yeah so the, the key word for me is curiosity Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what built the Discovery Channel. If you go back and, and look, I mean, what he was really after was satisfying human curiosity, and I think he's done an amazing yes. job of that with their whole brands and all. But uh, but the opportunity to go out and, and and pursue your curiosity is something that I think, unfortunately, we give up when we meet the realities of life you know, mm-hmm. as we grow up. But being able to maintain your curiosity. Uh, and sort of why is that there? Yes. Why do things do that way? Why couldn't it be this way? Uh, this is the spirit, I think, the fundamental spirit, I would say, that would be the most interesting to encourage. So if you're something you're curious about, you know, go figure it out and take the time. I mean, I remember dismantling uh, a radio when I was a young boy mm. and taking it completely apart, taking all the parts out, I mean, every little part. And my dad didn't say anything. He was fine. It was all radio. Right? Mm-hmm. Is there, is there, it seems like a silly question, but is there a uh, NASA website where one can go and find out about applying to be an intern and how how old you have to be? There are programs like that. They are on the NASA. 
Okay. Uh, and uh, and they have uh, offices that handle uh, you know intern applications and things. Yeah, they do. Fantastic. Well, Ed W. Rogers, Ph.D. He has been a wonderful guest. Uh, he is the chief knowledge officer at the Goddard Space Flight Center at NASA. Always a joy talking to you. And, and frankly, uh, I think the greatest compliment I can pay, besides all the incredible knowledge and information you have to share and how you share it in a way so that we all can understand, is that every time I talk to you on the radio, and maybe that's once every two years, it's always like the, we, 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 you know, it's like no time has passed. Um, Absolutely, and I love that. I, I, for whatever reason that is, it's um, it's a pleasure, absolute pleasure, personal well, and professional. Thank you, Marcel. I think it's definitely a kindred spirit. Okay. So thank you. All right. Thank you, Ed. All the best to you, wife, family, uh, moving, and of course to NASA and all future missions. Take care now. Bye now. Thank you. Cheers. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from the Reasonable Voice. Discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. The sign at the Seabell Beauty Shop is broken, with the bee hanging precariously, perhaps a symbol of the lives of those who congregate there. Nonetheless, business continues. Setting a story in a beauty shop is tried in true territory. We almost expect Queen Lativa to interstate right, but this shop is located in Beirut, Lebanon, which separates caramel from the pile. It gives us an intimate look at the lives and challenges that faces women in a relatively modern corner of the Middle East. And plentiful laughter along the way. The most popular Lebanese film ever. It has garnered ample international acclaim. Caramels written by a woman about women. We amble along with five likable characters facing very personal issues. Love, longing, adultery, change of life, family obligations. All challenged by societal restrictions that add spice to the mix. We would all be blessed to have such friends. They are respectful enough to observe mistakes with quiet acceptance. They are there to offer each other an embrace, a shoulder to cry on, and the necessary good humor for passing the days and padding the grief. You make caramel by heating sugar to 170 degrees until it turns into that delicious gooey substance we love on ice cream. In the film, it's used for hair removal. Like waxing. Who knew? Caramel. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the Reasonable Voices heard round the world. From a king's dream to a nightmare every 140 characters. If on Wednesday, January 11, 2017, when the person of 2016 again demonstrated his lack of First Amendment knowledge, Deserters from the Fourth Estate, instead of leaping to their feet to curry favor with a boorish pretender to the crown, had in protest walked out on the Goliath du jour, that would have been America great again. Greatness and character are lost on those for whom ratings is definition, and heroism, I like people who weren't captured. For few recognize the courage of an American nearly beaten to death with a dream of democracy, justice, and equality. People like John Lewis deserve more than a tinge of color blindness in February or a January federal holiday. 
There are millions of Americans of every hue, territory, creed, and persuasion challenged with invisibility, who now have used our political process to grasp at a mirage hoping to be seen, blackish or not. Since the military-industrial complex merged with trickle-down economics, vision for millions of good, well-meaning, patriotic Americans has narrowed to short-sighted absolutes. 1. What's good for my family is best for every American family. 2. No issue, not even affordable health care for my children in a life-threatening environment is more important than jobs. 3. The only solution to America's problem is something different. In 2016, media-fed oversimplification turned America hard right, and on February 20th, 2017, a 140-character wall will be ensconced to hide an American president from Americans. Because we've allowed elected officials to believe rules don't apply to them... America is at the intersection where dismay and defeat can T-bone peaceful assembly to protest foreign and domestic corporatism. Long before the war on women was waged by male conservative war dogs, conservative women, insisting 20th century women, were the pillar of family values, indiscriminately opposed abortion, the Equal Rights Amendment, and LGBT and income equality. With the arrival of the lobster with no morals, elected by women with no color, America's gender parity cracks anew amidst malice aforethought, and fences rise like temperatures and sea levels to wall out the mutual justice of I have a dream. Through the lens of our 2016 elections, it may seem America was a perfect la-la land. But that would be one of the many half-truths our parents continually tell our children. For American exceptionalism has rarely embraced loving in black and white. Shaking off the extremes of an electoral college and an unethical 115th Congress, abandoning America with attempts to banish humanitarian ethics, eliminates any need to relearn past lessons in right-wing red ink, wading us through the dead pool of Bush-Cheney. Let's cast off leadership incapable of intellectual curiosity and instead emulate Americans progressively committed to carry our lady's torch, come hell or high water. Like a lion, roar, no more hidden figures calculating in moonlight. Being a raisin in the sun, of too big to jail, indiscriminately controlling white and blue collars, the disadvantaged poor and the working middle class, with marketed information keeping consumers and stockholders blinded by financial fears and, like nocturnal animals, desperate to keep America in darkness. Media's failure to give equal coverage to the wisdom of Viola Davis, to that of Meryl Streep, is testimony to how far we have yet to go to embrace stronger together. But Donald Trump proves how far we can distort our Captain Fantastic within. The next U.S. president thinks there's power in his Twitter fingertips. We need make it his Achilles heel. For one who so craves adoration will blow away like yesterday's dust 
as soon as we deny him our freedom. There are far greater traitors on Wall Street and in the halls of Congress than Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden. This revealing duo is more akin to the patriotism of Alice Paul, President and Jackie Kennedy, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Bobby Kennedy, Rosa Parks, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Daniela Gibbs-Leger, and Barack Obama, then anti-American birthers and Russian hackers. Truth is, patriotism is Americans participating in weekly protest events, because it's not government of, by, and for the people until we the people show up. This is us. Thank you. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.